Our children out of their learning centers, children ages first grade through fifth grade, your teachers are waiting for you right now in the education center. All right, well, good morning. I'm really glad that you're here. Here we are taking in the, uh, the third week in this mutiny series. I don't know if you caught that, but it seemed like Seahawk colors were bleeding through God's white robes. So now we know who he's cheering for. Okay. So let's pray for a second and let's look into this. God, uh, in the world full of noise... We ask for your speaking voice to be our teacher today. We ask that uh, you would uh, bring us to the ancient path, bring us to the place where there is rest for our souls, and that we might know what the kingdom of God truly is. Help us to live in it for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, I think uh, when we look at this whole issue of media, Everybody can say, okay, topic this morning, media, technology. We live in an era of incredible advanced technology and incredible media saturation. That is just a given. So maybe right out of the gate you said, they're going to talk about that in church? Like seriously? What on earth would the ancient words of the Bible have to say about this modern problem? As it turns out, quite a bit. And so here's, I want to just uh, hang everything on this uh, key text for us this morning from Paul. He writes it to the Corinthians in the first century. But check this out. He says to them, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So how does this relate like this? There's probably nothing that epitomizes the seen more than your technology in your media, right? I mean, that just dominates the world of your physical experience and uh, sight. Think about it for just a second, like the average day of a person in this room. Like maybe, for example, most of us got up sometime in the middle of this week, and first thing you saw was your alarm clock. And it's a nice little iPod docking one, so you didn't just see your alarm clock, you could hear it too. So immediately you got up and you were looking and hearing, and media was assaulting you. Then you got to breakfast, you turned on the television. First thing, you had to watch the news or Good Morning America. Then a lot of us got in our car, and the first thing we did was we turned on our radio. To our favorite radio station, or we're hearing uh, iTunes, or in my case, it's uh, sports radio, and you listen to a shock jock tell you for the millionth time that Aaron Rodgers' calf is going to be just fine, right? I mean, how many times do we need to hear that? I mean, that calf, that is the most talked about calf in Wisconsin, and that's saying something. (laughs) Did you get it? No, you didn't get it, did you? There's a lot of cows in Wisconsin. No, if I have to explain it, AC3, come on. Most talked about calf in Wisconsin? No. Okay. These are the jokes. So then you went to work. Then you went to work. And a lot of us spent most of our hours at work looking at a plasma monitor, right? Sometimes for hours up to maybe eight. And then uh, back home, maybe got on a treadmill, got put on a little device on your wrist, a Fitbit, which not only measured your heart rate, but your biorhythms and like told you what your ideal burn was. This is an amazing piece of tech. And then uh, after that, well, you, uh, you probably looked at your phone at some point. A lot of times, in fact, during the day, you text or you talked or you Skyped with people that were a million of miles away. Then you looked at the computer some more when you got home, and uh, you checked some really important Facebook news feeds like angry or ill-informed political or religious commentary. That's indispensable. We have to have that. Pictures of your foodie friend's latest dinner offering. A video of their children's latest accomplishment or embarrassing moment. You had to see that stuff. And then finally, you end your day where it began with your TV on, with your alarm, uh, your iPod alarm clock being set for the next morning. You'll do it all over again. 
So the statistics are uh, in on this one. And the average American is consuming up to 11 hours a day. Apparently, according to the video you saw in the opening, more than that. My statistics might be old. 13.6. And so that's amazing when you think about all that added up together. Phone, Facebook, TV, radio, MP3 player, computer, web. Add it all up. That's an amazing portion of our day. And so what I'm saying is that our lives are dominated stem to stern by our technology. And as I said, technology epitomizes more than anything else the world of the seen, the seen world, the physical world. And see, get this, Paul's audience, first century people, they understood the deal. They're corporeal beings like you, are, you and I are. What does that mean? That means they're made in the flesh, and they live in a fleshy world. They live in a physical world. So they dealt with jobs, and they dealt with uh, money and people and their own technology, just like we did. But if Paul's message was relevant to them and their first century technology, then it's got to be doubly relevant for us in the 21st century. Why? Because if there is something that tends toward getting us to not fix our eyes on the unseen realm, it's technology. And why is that? Well, guess, guess what? I mean, our appetites are essentially what cause us to focus exclusively on the physical realm, right? We're built With appetites. We've got appetite for food and air and sleep and sex and entertainment. We have all these appetites, right? And that all dominates the physical world that we live in. Well, guess what? Technology tends to play to our appetites. So Paul is saying, warning, because you're a physical person made in a physical world, do not fix your eyes there. Do not give in to the idea that this is all there is. Instead, Paul says, do what? Instead, Paul says, fix your eyes on what is unseen. Now, is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? I mean, just read it literally. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. So I'm going to see invisible things now? Well, this is exactly what he means, but he means to look with different eyes than your physical eyes, of course. And so this affirms what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses. Same idea, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. It says about Moses, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And here's more seeing of unseen things, right? Here's more seeing of invisible things. So clearly, AC3, the Bible is calling you to look with eyes other than the physical, to see with spiritual eyes of a reality behind the physical, that there's more to life than all of this. And not just look there occasionally, not just to blandly uh, believe as about 80 to 90% of Americans do, that there is some kind of God or deity or spiritual force in the universe in which we live, not to maybe think that that spiritual realm exists, but to fix our eyes there. Like that that the regular habit of our life is to acknowledge that there's more to life than this life. That that's a regular habit, a discipline. Why and how? That's the two questions that immediately follow, right? Why would we do this, since we are physical creatures living in a physical world, and how will we do it? The why question he answers right in the verse. Take a look at it again. He says, why should you do this? Why? Because what is seen is temporary, right? Because what is seen is temporary. Yeah, this world is real. And yes, it's important. And yes, it's created by God and originally created good and pristine. But it is not as it is now forever. It's passing away. However, what is unseen, God and 
His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus said is inside you, is more real and more relevant and more important because it relates to what lasts for forever. Okay, So you get this. In a real simple cost-benefit analysis, a little deduction, Paul says, no matter how important the seen things feel, no matter how pressing or urgent or fun, and conversely, no matter how awful or painful or sad the seen things feel, do not fix your eyes there because they're not forever. The good stuff's not forever and the bad stuff's not forever. But the unseen things, they last. They last and they satisfy. Let me give you some context here. Paul has just said, okay, so just back up in the text. And Paul has just said these words, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Okay, so tell me, how do you go through it? This is his biographical information, AC3. We know this about Paul. He experienced being hard-pressed, being perplexed, being persecuted, and being struck down. So how do you go through that and not just focus totally on this world, on the seen thing? How do you do that? Well, you have to, by discipline and habit of heart, You have to fix your eyes on what is unseen. And pain, Paul knows, just is a lure to call us into thinking that all life is is the physical. So Paul says, i got to fix my eyes on some other place. Because if I don't, I'm just going to be overwhelmed. Instead of being crushed and despair and abandonment and feeling destroyed, he says, "We're, we're experiencing something different. We're experiencing life in the middle of this. Because our eyes are fixed on something else. Now, it works the other way too, AC3. It works on the pleasure side of things too. The pleasure is a powerful lure to get us to think that all life is 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 the physical stimulation that you can derive from cradle to grave. And that's all that matters. I mean, finally, in a spiritual-less world, that is all that matters, right? And guess what? This is where technology comes in. Let me give you a working definition. Technology is the making, the usage, and the knowledge of tools, machines, or techniques in order to solve a problem. Okay? So think of the problems that technology solves. Technology solves physical problems. It's the application of a physical solution or knowledge to a physical problem so that it enhances our physical pleasure or diminishes our physical pain, or diminishes our physical workload. That's technology. And so expanding technology has been so successful at enhancing our physical lives, it has now become believable that there is no such thing as a spiritual life, that all spiritual reality is illusory. That has become believable in our day in a way that it would have never become believable 150 years ago or 100 millennia or 100 centuries ago. I mean, no one would believe it to the, to, the, to the rate that we're believing it now. Do you see the problem? Technology, because of its work in enhancing the physical life, can pull us away from seeing the unseen. And you can, this is a straight-up sociological fact, AC3. The level of a society's technological prowess is inversely proportional to its spiritual vitality. Take that to the bank. Let me say it again. The level of a society's technological prowess is inversely proportional to its spiritual vitality. And that's a fascinating fact. So if you trust Jesus like you believe him, 
You take him at his word. You believe he is who he said he was. And I believe there's people in this room who maybe haven't settled on that yet. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're investigating that. But if you come to that place where you believe he is who he said he was, and he's telling you the truth, that real life is God, it's found in God, and God is invisible, and finding the kingdom of heaven and growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ is the thing that matters most of all because it's the thing that lasts and the thing that satisfies. And if you further believe that swimming in 11 hours of media obscures those critical facts, ergo, therefore, then, you must believe with me that we desperately need to limit our exposure to media. I mean, that we have to be in control of that. That we have to be wise consumers of it. For all that's at stake. Jen Hatmaker has written this book that uh, we built a lot of the the structure of our series on. It's called Seven, and she writes about her mutiny against excess. Fascinating piece of this where she says, when her family went on a media fast, not for a week, we're going to talk about that in a second. Imagine stretching this out for a month. They did it for a month, media fast. So all these technological inputs put to the side for 30 days. She said the first thing she found was time. Time. Copious amounts of time. Of course, if we're, if we're soaking 11 to 13 hours a day into this thing, that's the first thing that she found. Time for tasks. Time for things that used to gnaw away at her that she found were always being undone. But along with time, she found one thing more. I'm just going to read. She says, Several times as I realized I was caught up on correspondence, done with the laundry, and finished with my to-do list, I found God whispered, hi there. See, God is using this media fast, she says, to transform the ease of my communion with him, to find something more relational, to find something more daily, something in the gaps of activities, something of what it means when the Bible says to walk humbly with your God. Now let's face it, AC3. Our communion with God does not suffer so much for lack of desire as it does for lack of time. I mean, would you say that this morning? You'd say, yeah, you know, I mean, I really want to seek God. I want to ask, seek, knock. I want to get to the quiet places where I can really come after God and feel God coming after me and the whole thing. But time, time, time is a real issue, Rick. And yet, okay, here's the deal. One of the greatest ironies about technology is it's supposed to save all this time, and yet it has become a colossal time waster. We say, I want to I, I slow down and seek, but I don't have the time. But then somehow we found the time to binge watch five seasons of Lost. Somehow we found the time for 45 minutes of Sports Center. Somehow we t- found time for an hour of Facebook chatter. We found time for an evening of YouTube video surfing. We found time for four hours of gaming, eight hours of gaming. AC3, what is God calling us to in this? I mean, if we're this kind of distracted and crazy out of control, maybe, maybe. There's a direct correlation between our our measurement of media consumption and our intimacy with God. I'll give you an example. The Tyson household has made the great error of welcoming a dog into our lives again. After a prior 11-year experiment in the canine front, uh, we decided to go after the puppy thing one more time. So here's the deal. I'm the alpha, and I'm going to train this dog. And the thing I'm noticing is that there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the room, and that is not helping the puppy training. And one of the things that's going on as a distraction in the room while I'm trying to train is a really, really helpful four-year-old toddler. Okay? 
So it goes something like this. Tasha, sit. Sit, Tasha, sit, Tasha. Sit, Tasha, sit. Daddy told you to sit. Daddy told you to sit. Sit, 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 So what's the dog doing? And just finding something to bite in that moment is really the only thing that the puppy's got in its mind. Me, the little girl, you know, our clothing, anything. Because right now what's not on the dog's mind is sit or stay or come or lay down or shake a paw or nothing that I'm trying to train it to do because it's just going squirrel the whole time. And I'm realizing as the trainer in this little dog experiment, I'm going to have to get that dog alone. I'm going to get that dog in a room away from the four-year-old and away from the noise. I can tell even the noise of the television in the room. It's just driving the dog crazy. And then the smells. Do you know that the dog smells 50,000 times more things than you do? Okay? It's like having another set of eyes. It's like another sense, right? It's reading the air like email. Okay? I've got to get that dog alone. I've got to get it away. In AC3, how are we not like my dog? We have to get ourselves away from the inputs or else we will never be trained in the way of the master. So how are we going to get this done? Two things to keep our eyes on unseen things. Number one, theologically, in other words, this is a truth step. It has to be set in your mind as a matter of principled theology that you are a creation manager. And how you manage the creation is unique to you as a Christian. And this is very understood in the culture, so let me go through it so we all are clear. This is how Christians manage creation. It begins in Genesis, not surprisingly, with the creation mandate that God gives humanity. Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image, the only creature on earth about which God said he would input his image. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over all the earth, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and here's a key word, subdue it. And then again, Genesis 2, in a parallel creation account, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So Christians have believed for millennia now that God has called humans to exercise responsible stewardship, leadership over planet Earth. We do not own the Earth, but we are called to manage it. And we do so in a twofold way. Number one, we subdue. And number two, we care. It's a twofold creation mandate. This means we don't abuse it, but we don't leave it alone either. And so the two parts of the creation mandate actually balance each other, and it's really healthy. And some think that the creation mandate is only one of these things or the other, and so misunderstand. So the subduing part of the mandate balances the care part by saying, look, when nature is wild, as it often is, when nature is uncomfortable, which it often is, or raw, you don't have to sit in front of a tidal wave or a growling dog and just die. There's a permission in the subdue part of the mandate that says you are called to tame it. That's what subdue means. You are called to tame it, to harness it, to use it for good ends. That's subdue. And that's a healthy thing, contrary to perhaps how it's perceived. The care part balances the subdue part by saying, look, creation doesn't belong to you. It's on loan from God. So you cannot rape it. You cannot abuse it. You are called to manage it sustainably because it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. So here's the point of all this creation understanding. Inside of the subduing, caring mandate is a permission. Are you hearing it? The permission is to do science. 
The permission is to explore. The permission is to discover. The permission is to invent. And within literally sentences of the creation mandate being given, humanity is engaged in the principle or in the in the activities of zoology and botany and then agriculture on page three and then animal husbandry. These are inventions. These are this is technology. This is the exploration and the subduing and caring of the created order. It's a beautiful thing. And it's supposed to take place under the purposes of God, which were, there we see it in creation. What's happening there? Community. Oneness with God, community with one another, and harmony with what God has made. Unity, community, harmony. It's a beautiful thing. But if you read the Bible story quickly, sin has entered the picture, and this whole picture breaks. So Christians... Uh, have understood that information, technology, and the creation mandate should be like instruments in the hands of those who believe that God's intent is to return humanity back to God's original creation design. Unity, community, harmony. And through Jesus, that will be affected someday. That job is going to be complete someday. That's how Christians have, have seen it. And so then historically, in the last 2,000 years, Christians have used technology to heal people. They invented hospitals uh, and alleviate suffering and to advance education. Christians really were, were the backbone of the launching of, of, of schools. Uh, and then also to get the message of the, the cross out, to, to, to tell the world about how God is doing this whole thing, bringing the world back to his original creation designs. Unity, community, harmony. And to get that message out, we use technology. And that has happened in as diverse ways as Paul getting in a boat, that's technology. Or uh, walking on a Roman road, that's incredible, advanced technology. Or writing on papyri with a pen, that's technology. Fantastic pieces of first century technology, all the way to today using radio and planes and now the internet. And speaking of planes, I've got an example of how Christians have kind of taken this creation mandate really seriously. Some of you heard of a guy named Nate Saint. He died as a Christian martyr missionary in South America in the late 40s. His son, Steve Saint, loves the missionary enterprise and has seen the connection between technology and the purposes of Jesus in this world. And so he went about and invented the flying car. Yeah. So if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, and now you're sitting here in 2015 saying, where's my flying car? There it is. The world's first functioning flying car, the Maverick. And guess what? It was invented by a Christian specifically for mission. That's the only reason he invented that car. That car goes from 0 to 60 in 3.9 seconds. It uh, is an amazing off-road buggy, basically, and it is made to go where roads are rough, and then where roads end, you kick out a wing, and you fly. And the thing will fly at 40 miles an hour for four hours. It has a range of about 120 miles. It will go into hard-to-reach places, and it will bring missionaries there to bring good news of Jesus. But it will also bring amazingly helpful medical supplies. It can carry a sick person in that car back to where they can get much-needed medical help. And this is all part of the creation mandate being lived out beautifully. And so this is permission to use technology in service to God. So the question, AC3, when you consider all the tech in your life, is your technology leveraged in service to God? Is it enhancing unity with God? Or is it honestly corrupting unity with God? Is it enhancing community with one another? Or honestly, is it breaking community and the threads of relationship and connection? 
Is it enhancing your harmony with the created things? Or is it, honestly, technology, honestly, sometimes breaking harmony with the created things? AC3, your house, is it on, is it on loan from God in your mind and therefore for use by the master for unity and, and community and harmony? How about your television set? How about your car? How about your internet? How about your phone? So AC3, fixing our eyes on what is seen drives us to be responsible stewards of, fixing our eyes on what is unseen causes us to be great stewards of what is seen, the creation. And so that's the first big piece. We've got to set that in our minds. Now, second way we keep our eyes fixed on the unseen is, and this gets real practical now, limit our consumption of media. There's a great book on my Kindle called The Information Diet by Clay Johnson. And In the introduction, he makes the case that our consumption of information has undergone the same transformation as our consumption of food, which we talked about last week. Remember, there was a transformation in the last hundred years of our consumption of food, and for the same reason. Food went from really expensive, remember all the critical calories, to now being really cheap. All the garbage calories, sugars and salts and, you know, refined sugars and all that, and and fats, super cheap. Used to be really expensive, now it's super cheap. Same thing has gone, uh, gone about in the area of media. Media used to be really expensive. It used to be really expensive to create media, written language and the transfer of data, and now it's just dirt, cheap. It's as cheap as dirt. The storage and transmission of data is dirt cheap. Side note, one of the reasons it's so amazing that archaeologists have thousands of manuscripts of the Bible is that books and letters in the ancient world were incredibly rare. Why were they incredibly rare? It was incredibly cost prohibitive for you to send a letter from this side of the Roman Empire to the other. You had to get pen. You had to get papyri. These things would cost in modern dollars thousands and thousands of dollars. You had to hire a scribe, an amanuensis is what they called it. And then that person was hired at exorbitant fee because that person was educated, which only 10% of the population was. And then that letter had to be transmitted by boat or by cart thousand miles across the Roman Empire without an airplane, without a steamliner, without internet. Thousands and thousands of dollars. That's the way it used to be. Not so today. It's cheap. It's dirt cheap. Even 10 years ago, if you wanted to publish a book, you could count on spending $10,000 for a minimal first run and then wait about six months before you could start selling in bookstores. Today, You can publish any book on smashwords.com for a $40 membership fee, and you can have your manuscript on Amazon and people buying an e-version of it within one minute. Today in the world, there are 300,000 new books every year. In 1850, all the published books in the world, in world history, amounted to 310,000. I mean, information just gotten so incredibly cheap that everyday Americans zip through 3.6 zettabytes of data online. Just to give you a sense of perspective, a zettabyte is 1 million petabytes, which is 1 million gigabytes. That's a lot of data, and it's just going about, and it's free for the most part, except for the electrons it costs to power the machines. If you search for information overload on Google, you will get 7.5 million hits. That's right next to your search on irony. Right? We feel information overload, don't we, AC3? People use this phrase all the time, I feel overloaded, without realizing this is like the the ultimate first world problem. 
Think about the things that people say, oh, my inbox is just so full, I can't get through it. People say stuff like, ah, I just can't keep up with all the tweets and all the status updates. It's overwhelming me. It's overload, information overload. People say, I have so many episodes of glee that I've got to get through. My DVR is so full and through tears, you know. It's like, how will I ever get through all the stuff? Here's the truth, AC3. Let's be honest. There's no such thing as information overload. There is no such thing. There is only information overconsumption. That's true. There is no such thing as information overload. Think about it. Information is not requiring you to consume it. Kentucky Fried Chicken does not have the ability to jump on your body and clog your arteries. Right? And and, uh, no one says a cancer victim died of cigarette overload. Right? Unless we mean that like a cigarette truck fell on them or something like that. No, information technology cannot force you to do anything. And so then, like food, we just have to be better consumers of it. We just got to be better consumers of it. And as Jesus people, the people who follow Jesus in this room, you can't just be carried away with the flow of the culture, which is be swept up in information overload. You have to stand and say, no, I'm going to be principled in this. And I'm going to use it in the measured way that God is calling me to use it. And no more, no less. And so to start your mutiny, I suggest that we declare mutiny against excess media and excess technology and information with three things. Number one, first suggestion to you is that you dedicate a time in your day for email, for status update checking and all that kind of stuff, and then brace yourself, turn it off. Yeah, turn it off. Now, I'm speaking to you so confidently this morning from the stage, you have no idea what an epic fail I am at this whole thing. I I actually have a reminder in my Outlook to turn off Outlook. Because Outlook is such a nagging drain on my attention resources. And so, yes, I'm I'm suggesting that uh, that you with me say that um, unless your job demands otherwise, you turn off the Internet. You turn off the phone or Facebook or however you get updates and emails and news feeds until the time that you decide that you're ready to take in that information in the amount that you want. Okay, number one. Number two, look at your information sources. And here's an interesting point that's made in the information diet. Um, When calories became cheap, the problem went from malnutrition and just like all the way over to this other side, and what's our main problem, health problem today? Obesity. So in the 16th century, malnutrition, number one problem with food. And now the number one problem is obesity. Same thing happens when information got cheap. When information got cheap, the problem shifted from ignorance to now sensationalism. So that now we feel justified in sort of getting our information sources, because there's an overwhelming amount of them. We can get our information now from wherever we choose, sources that feed our anger, feed our pride, feed our sectarian biases. Are you with me? And so there's a whole big difference between information and affirmation. And I think as people who love Jesus, who want to speak the truth in love, who listen as the master says, do not worry, we're going to increasingly get our news and our information from sources that are close to the ground where, where the actual news is happening. And we're not going to be caught up in sectarian bias so much and uh, the inflaming sensationalism that tends to uh, get us to huddle in polarized groups. 
And we're going to be less anxious about things that purport to be news. Did you see that video of the two-headed shark that ate the guy in Australia? You've got to watch this video. And then we get anxious about things that we just do not need to even be thinking about. We measure by controlling our consumption, AC3, and controlling our sources. And then lastly, and this is, I think, most important, and we're all going to try to do this together this week, I hope, limit all technology sometimes. That is to say, sometimes, just as a nice little habit to establish the primacy of the unseen things, go on a tech fast. Just go on a media fast. Cold turkey. No internet, no Facebook for a week. Think about it. Now, friends, all fasts reveal what control us. And as you're dry heaving over there in your chair this morning, thinking about this, think about what's controlling you. Fasts reveal what controls. And for some, media is like heroin. It's like crack cocaine. And there's an actual physiological reason for it. Time Magazine reports, scientists are saying, email, phone calls, and other incoming information can change how people think. They say our ability to focus is being undermined by bursts of information. These are playing into a primitive impulse to respond to immediate opportunities and threats. But we now have a large group of people who think that the slightest hint that something interesting might be going on is like catnip. They can't ignore it. And when I read that, that hit me right between the eyes. Yes, it's like catnip. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. I got to get this next thing and this next thing. I have developed an addiction to input. That's my confessional statement to you. I developed an addiction to input. So I'm studying or I'm writing or I'm reading stuff that's critical to my mission in the world. And in the corner of my screen, you've got mail. And I got to go there, even though half the time it's spam selling me products to enhance my love life. You know, I got I to gotta click on, I got I to get that out of my inbox as quick as possible, or my Facebook alert, or my iPhone alert, or my Clash of Clans alert, or this article here, which will just take a minute, an hour later. And that's my life. So, friend, believe this. In challenging us all to unplug just for seven days, go with me on this. I might be calling you into a little bit of paradise. A little bit of paradise. This is permission to realize that as you set some media boundaries, surprise, everyone will live. And the sun will get up tomorrow morning. What if, what if we identified entertainment and on-demand media noise as what it can be? An idol. And what if, what if we released ourselves and gave each other permission to release the idol of TV? The idol of the internet. The idol of this unreasonable pressure to respond to tweets and, and texts as immediately as soon as they come across our screen. I think we'd find that the dangerous part of this media-saturated culture, AC3, is not the technology. The dangerous part is in the things that it has displaced. It has displaced critical, beautiful conversations with family members around a meal and a focused, you know, a attentive conversation with a child or a spouse. That's not, yeah, yeah, honey, yeah, honey, yeah, I get Because we're just split. It's displaced the pleasure of the media we do watch because most of the time we're watching three different things at once and we're not enjoying any of them. The creativity, the planning, that can happen in the empty space that develops. 
And it's the psychic room to hear from the Almighty God who loves you. So can't do this fast? Shaking in your boots? Think about it. If you can't fast from technology, AC3, that might be a great sign to you that you are not using technology. Technology is using you. So I'm going to ask Sharon to come forward now, and she's going to call us into a practical mutiny against the excess uh, uh, media in our lives. Sharon, call us into this. Hello. I have been enlisted to explain the media challenge that might have people throwing things. No media. I'd rather skip lunch for another week. The most important rule to know is that the mutiny challenge does not start until tomorrow morning. And it ends um, at the church service that you attend next weekend. So nobody's going to miss the game. We're all going to be glued to the TV. We're all going to have lunch today. Yes. And um, the other rules involved are no TV, no apps, no texting, no phone, except to call another live human and have a conversation. And your choices are at two levels. Um, The mutiny challenge level will let you have seven hours of those things this week. The burn the ships level is none of that. None of that for the next seven days, except for if it is work-related or if it is schoolwork. Please don't quit your jobs and fail your classes. That's not the mutiny. Um, Also thought about what my week would look like as I pondered this challenge And what I'm going to do this afternoon is review my usual day and where I interact with media and make some plans now for what I'm going to do instead so I'm not just sitting in front of a dark laptop and sobbing. I know I like to drink my first cup of coffee while I play spider solitaire. And I'm devoted to excellence, so sometimes I play until I win. (laughs) That's not going to happen tomorrow. I need another plan. I'm going to put a journal on my keyboards And when I have a thought, I'm going to write that down. And it's going to be between me and God. It's not going to be between me and my social media friends. Um, If you have kids, this is the one challenge that is going to affect all ages in your family more equally. I'm assuming you didn't deny them lunch last week. So um, you can do this with your kids. Um, In the morning times, I'm going to put my dog on a leash, and I'm going to go walk to Starbucks and purchase the newspaper I can now buy and the cappuccino I can now drink. Oh, we're just going to read some news maybe that way. Ebooks are okay on all your devices. And so this week's prayer challenge is to pray for peace um, around this room itself and in a very small radius. In our little town, we would find lots of broken peace. We would find hearts in turmoil and voices raised and families coming apart. And those things make God's heart hurt. Um, Prayer and talking to him is about letting our heart go there with him, unleashing him to use us against the suffering that broken peace causes. He came into this world with the announcement, peace on earth, and he left us with the promise of peace the world can't give. So this week, let us just rest in that together and enjoy his own peace. Awesome. All right, let's pray together, and let's seal this time. Dear God, you are the one who speaks. 
But a lot of us in this room, we haven't heard you. Not for a very long time. And when we think about how noisy our lives are, we wonder why. Oh God, would you help us to sever ourselves from the idols that have taken our attention away from you. And so hear your speaking voice and be called into life that is really life. We pray this in Jesus' name, who brought it. Amen.